0: May God write it on our hearts that we might not sin against him. Well, it's good to be here with you guys once again. Uh, it is, my number has been called to preach, and I am thankful that it is a text that is such at the heart of who we are here at RBC. We, I mean, even the, this morning in our Membership Matters uh, class, we went over this exact text because of its relevancy to how churches are to live together. The title of the sermon is The New Covenant Community. Within this passage, at this time in, churches, in the church's history, there is a movement going on. There is a transition going on from Old Testament covenant, Mosaic, Davidic, Noahic, Abrahamic covenant, there is this transition to the new covenant, the covenant of grace that now we get to walk in. That's why we don't look exactly like synagogues and, and things look like in the Old Testament. We don't do things like sacrifice animals, right? That would be a, a really awkward, you know, Sunday morning worship service for us because the church hasn't done that since this time. We've finally gotten to the point where we understand a transition that is taking place. So, In this passage, we we talk about something. The first thing that has come up, it says, and they devoted. So we live in an age that lacks resolve. We lack conviction, devotion, commitment. These are things that the first century people had. It says here that they devoted themselves to, and then we'll get into the main portion of our text. But what this is talking about, this word devoted, is a resolve. It is a conviction that is deep within them to say, I am for this. I'm going to commit my entire existence to these things. It's the same thing we have heard from Solomon when he he said, I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know folly. I'm committing all of who I am to know these things, to be committed to these things. So what things are we going to see in our text this morning. So it's going to be uh, three points. They're going to uh, kind of round out our our studying. The cool thing that happens here is for each, so the first verse is almost like an explicit list, and then the rest of it is expounding upon that list. Everything that comes in verse 43 to 47 is a result of one of the things that are in verse 42. So they act as, as pairing. So point one is going to be signs, Signs point to sound teaching. Signs point to sound teaching. Sure, this now. And then uh, our second point is going to be fellowship makes us friendly. Fellowship makes us friendly. And then point three, our, our final point, will be gathering fuels going. Gathering fuels going. So, with all of that, and with understanding where we're coming from. And understanding that they are committing the entirety of their lives, the first century church is committing their lives to these things, what are they? So let's dive into our text in verse 42. Pause. Before we get into that, what's happening? What just happened? God, through the preaching of his word, through Old Testament expository preaching by I Peter, has saved a lot of people right they have he 's saved by his grace through the proclamation of his word about three thousand souls, and he added them to the one hundred and twenty souls that were already gathered worshiping, waiting on the, the spirit, had the spirit fall on them, and now began to proclaim and, and teach so this is coming on the cusp of a really big moment in church history this is the the biggest revival if you Well, in church history up to this point, because the church just got started, right? But still, even by today's standards, 3,000 souls coming to know Christ in spirit and in truth and being devoted to some things about following Christ is something to take note of. So what then are they devoting themselves to? First point, signs point to sound teaching. So first thing that Luke, the author, brings up about devotion is that they're devoted to love, right? Love or maybe justice. They're devoted themselves to justice, social activism. How about mercy? That's a good trait. They devoted themselves to mercy. All of these things should f- find their place within a church and have marks of a church, right? Well, yes, but that's not what Luke brings up first. That's not the first thing that they've devoted themselves to. It's not these auxiliary things that come as a result of the main thing. But what does he say? There are so many things that Luke could have brought up right here as the first thing to, to, to list as they, as they are uh, devoting themselves to following Christ and living together. If you ever find a list in Scripture where the author lists a bunch of things, take note of the first thing that he always brings up. It's, it's important usually. It's a good Bible study one on tip. So there's so many other things that Luke could have brought up first. He could have said being missional, which they eventually did, Fruitful, culturally engaging, supernatural happenings, speaking in in tongues as they just witnessed. But that's not what Luke wants to point out is the most important thing that they're devoting themselves to. What is it? It's the apostles' teaching. It is sound doctrine as given from Jesus to these men and being equipped by the whole Old Testament, because they're Jews, don't forget, right? They, They know the Old Testament. So the first thing he wants to bring up is teaching, the apostles' teaching. Listen, these people that devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, they loved to learn. They were consumed with this idea that the the living God immersed himself in humanity, wrapped himself in flesh in the form of a a, a virgin-born baby, lived this life perfectly, died in the stead of ruined sinners, rose again, and then went up to be with God, is now sitting at the right hand of the majesty on, on high. That God, that Savior, Christ Jesus, he taught things to these men. He didn't teach things to everyone. He preached sermons, yes. But he really instructed these men, even post-resurrectionists, said he opened their eyes to the scriptures. It's so They knew that these men, what they were teaching, was from Jesus. They were regurgitating the things that Jesus had instructed them to, and so they loved it. They wanted to learn the things of God. They had an unshakable desire to grow and to know God more fully. They devoted themselves to learning. Sometimes learning to love learning does not come easy, right? It's tough. If you're anything like me, it took a long time, and Multiple decades before I realized that it is good to love learning. Sometimes, it takes the right material, right? To love learning, you really got to first find that thing that engages you. You got to first find that thing that lights a spark in you for wanting to know more. For some of us, it's history. For some of us, it's theology. For some of us, it's math. Looking at you, Brooke. That's weird, okay? Right? So, like, we... uh, We are sparked by something, and then we begin to learn to love. So material actually matters. Thankfully, we have us here today, 21st century Christianity and 1st century uh, Jews in these verses, these newly converted Christians. Thankfully, we have material for teaching that transcends culture, history, time. We have the teachings of Jesus. We have the examples of Jesus' life and the testimony of those he, he affected with his life. We have a material that is first and foremost the direct word of God without error, and so we can learn. Now, that's not direct one-to-one from what these Christians were going through, right? This is the inception of the church, the, the, the very beginnings of who they are. And these, these men that are, are teaching, that they're devoting themselves to, they're going to go on to write a bunch of works that we now study today. Why do we study things like Romans? That ain't Jesus talking, right? Why do we study things like First and Second Peter? That ain't Jesus. That ain't the words of Jesus. We should just be about Jesus, right? Jesus affected and influenced and taught these men the right things about Scripture, He opened their eyes to see that the entire Old Testament, that from an early age, they devoted themselves to, especially the first five books of the law, they knew these front and back. They knew prophecies. They knew the Psalms. They knew the law. They knew the histories of Israel. These men and all gathered here, those 3,000, they knew that. Jesus opened their eyes to see that is entirely about him, all of it. The entirety of Scripture is about him. And so the apostles' teaching was not just theirs, but they learned from God in the flesh. And so when they teach, people need to take note because these are the people who were taught by Jesus, the good, great rabbi. They learned from the great teacher. They learned under Christ. They had a great foundation being Jews and knowing God's word from the Old Testament, but they did not know fully the scriptures until they had witnessed the risen savior. They didn't fully understand until Christ showed them and taught them. And so these men, what did they do? They simply taught what Jesus said. They simply taught and expounded on and put into practical ways the works of Christ. And honestly, these men were truly unremarkable. I mean, we've uh, seen in the text already that people are already kind of throwing shade, like, oh, aren't these guys from Galilee, right? Like, that's, they're not super smart out there. Or, like, we'll see, these are common men, right? These are common men teaching in such elegant ways. These men were not super remarkable prior to knowing the risen Savior. But in him teaching and communicating the great things about the the scriptures to them, they went on to turn the entire world upside down. And we're here as a result of God's faithfulness through those men. So the, the people of this time, they devoted themselves to those men's teachings. And we, today, are still learning from them, Right? We're devoting ourselves to their their teaching with the New Testament, the canon of the New Testament that we have before us. This is a testament to their teachings. And so we are doing the exact same thing as the believers here. We are devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching. Because it's their own? No. But it's because Jesus is the one who taught them, and they simply regurgitated and reciprocated and reproduced what Jesus wanted them to to know and teach others. Jesus gave them a commission to teach. He said, Go and to all the earth, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. So they took that, and they ran with it, and they taught all that Jesus had done, all that he taught them, and all that he was. A new covenant church is a Bible-centric church. We cannot call ourselves a church that follows in the pattern of these men, in the pattern of orthodoxy, if we are not men that are committed to a Bible-centric way of life. We can't do it. They are always learning. They begin to love uh, learning. They begin to grow, and they're always growing. They're always humbling themselves, knowing that they don't have it all figured out, and they're submitting themselves to what the apostles are teaching. Listen, and if you're here today and you don't know Christ as resurrected, all-powerful, merciful, gracious Lord, I want to speak directly to you for just a moment. This thing that we have here this thing that's at the center of everything that we do, this this book with thousands upon thousands of words in it, this book is worth your questions. It's worth investigation. It's worth research. It's worth your study. It is worth living your life by. These men are are, are not doing anything different than expounding upon, upon what Jesus had said to them. Jesus came and he fulfilled the Old Testament and he upheld it. Completed it, if you will. And nowhere else in all the world, in all the words of all the books on the planet, will you find life like you'll find it in these pages. The pages of scripture are here for us to rely on, to commit ourselves to, to devote ourselves to. And if you don't know Christ, it's to look at, read, study, research, and come to the understanding that Jesus is actually God in the flesh and that these apostles actually are teaching the unadulterated word of God and that God is wanting to save those who he's drawing near. Only here in the words of life will you find the hope that comes with knowing the author of it. On these pages of the scripture, the the teachings that the apostles were giving these these people, the the words that they've been so familiar with up to this point, you'll find a lot of things. You'll find a God who created the world. You you find a God who created man in his image to walk with him and to love him and to communicate with him. You'll find a people who disregarded that obligation, that joy that, that, that they got to walk in, they disregarded it. And so a people then fell away from the God who was so good to create them in the first place. And then you'll find a long history of men returning to love the Lord and then falling away, returning to love the Lord and then falling away again. That's the story of human history is that God has created us in his image to love, to worship, to revere and give him glory. And we're on this constant roller coaster of doing that and then not doing that, doing that and then not doing that. You'll find a fickle people like you and I there who, have, who need hope from something outside of ourselves. And then you'll find a Christ who, being God in the flesh, immersed himself in that creation and, and uh, sacrificed his life so that you and I, enters, those people on that roller coaster could actually be made right with him. And he rose again, defeating sin and death and hell. And you'll find in those pages that Christ ascended. He went to go be with the Father, and he promises that he's going to come back. He's going to right every wrong. He's going to wipe away every tear from every eye. He's going to take his people home to be with him, to worship, glorify, and honor him forever. We have to stand in the presence of this creator God for all of eternity. That's what you'll find on these pages. Christian, let me talk to you for just a moment. There is nothing else in your life that you should resolve yourself to do more than to know this word. The teachings are so important. We center our entire existence as New Testament, New Covenant Christians on the word of God. We have nothing else. God has spoken once for all time to us. Don't you think that this is worth spending your time on? Not your job, not your friends, your country, your health your hobbies, your relationships, this church. Listen, we love the local church here, but that's not the first and foremost thing you should be devoting yourself to. You should be devoting yourself to what God says about who he is in the word. Your family, great things, but that is subservient to you knowing God as he's revealed in his word. Nothing. Charles Spurgeon said, the pleasures pleasures, uh, arising from a right understanding of the divine testimonies are of the most delightful order. Earthly enjoyments are utterly contemptible if compared with them. The sweet joys, yea, the sweetest of sweetest falls to his portion who has God's truth to be his heritage. Find your heritage in the word of God. Devote yourself there the rest will fall in place, right? Jesus speaks on this in Matthew 6. Uh, Seek first the kingdom of God and all of this will be added to you. You neglect your devotion here and the rest will fall into pieces. See uh, the Psalms and other uh, uh, works to to communicate that. So, so this is... The thing, right? This is the, the first thing he lists in the first verse. What's it paired with, right? What's the outworking of this? So, the first thing being they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What is that paired with in our text today? The outworking of that is this teaching was not isolated from other miraculous occurrences, right? So, if you'll jump down and you'll see uh, 43, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Verse 43 says, awe and fear came upon the souls. The signs were not done by all in this text. It doesn't say everyone was doing signs and wonders. It does say that the apostles were doing signs and wonders. This is not essential to church life is what the author is getting at here. This is not essential for reenacting today in our culture. These were means that God was using in the time to distinguish those who were capital A apostles. He was using signs and wonders to show the rest of the world around them. These are the men that Jesus communicated to. These are the men we need to be listening to. That's the purpose of the signs and wonders here. It's not just to be miraculous and have a bunch of people come for healing or or deliverance or whatever else you might wanna come forward for. That wasn't the purpose. The purpose was to, to point them to the sound teaching. That's why our point says, signs point to sound teaching. In 2 Corinthians 12, 12, we see Paul says, the sign of true apostles were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. So Paul is even equating that the A mark, not the mark, but a mark of an apostle is doing miraculous mighty works. And so God is setting up in these people a clear definition of who is an apostle and who is not, Right? None not to say that they're above them in any sort of heavenly sense or that we should uh, you know, inaugurate them into sainthood. That's not what we're saying. What it is saying is that these people are set apart as people who spent time close with the God of the universe. If you look at the history of the early church, you see that miraculous things that the book of Acts speak of, healings, tongues, prophecy, d- d- deliverance from demons, those sorts of things, by and large they tend to fall away after the the death of the apostles. The early church didn't really there's not a ton of recorded occurrences about these sorts of things taking place, signs, wonders, mighty works, miracles. These things were done within the church but Uh, never on the scope of the effectiveness that Jesus and the apostles had. Jesus, you can look at the life of Jesus and the the life of the early church and it's marked by signs and, and miracles way more so than the Old Testament was, the time before Christ and way more so than the time after their death. It is clear that God is doing something in this season of human history and he is marking off those in which we should listen to the pursuit of signs and wonders as an accompaniment to regular Christian corporate gathering and practice is a relatively modern thought. The, the, the idea that we should be coming here to seek the signs really didn't start till the mid to late 1800s with a man named Charles Feeney who began setting up revivals that people would come to. And then it eventually really got off the, the ground in 1896 in the sheer schoolhouse revival It was really the first occurrence that we have recorded where people gathered together and just spoke gibberish in tongues. The reality is, is that we are not to pursue these things as normal, regular occurrences within the Christian life. Now, can God do what he wants? Yeah, of course God can do what he wants. However, he has chosen from these people to work not just through the signs and wonders, but to use those things to point back to the teaching. God's word is what he's using to change people. God's word is what he's using to send people out into the world with the mission of the gospel. Yeah. The good news is that we have a greater testimony and a greater witness than signs and wonders. We have, we, we have something that is more important and more relevant to the people around us than miracles. St. Bernard of Clairville was was among the first to say something along the lines of, we are in no more need of gifts or tongues or healings or other signs, for we have a greater miracle, the life of our believers. We have the church, the church affirming, agreeing together, as uh, uh, Christ commanded us to in Matthew 16, That is what we have in place of the signs and wonders. The church is where people should look to. The people of God is where people should look to to point to God's presence, not signs and wonders. The signs and wonders were an ends to get to a means. I'm sorry, they were means to get to an end. They were not the end themselves. Now, that responsibility to point people to Christ, to, to, to point people to where they should be listening, that comes from believers. It's our responsibility now to communicate to others where they should be listening, where they should be devoting their time to, and that's to God's word and his people. This is why we say in our membership class, the most important thing about a church is what it believes, because that's what they're going to be devoting themselves to the most, is what they see and communicate from the scripture. So, not only were they devoting themselves to what they said, and that was accompanied by signs and wonders, but also being one people with them. So, not only were they devoting themselves to the apostles who were teaching them, but then, what they do? They devoted themselves to one another. So, let's look at our next point. Fellowship makes us friendly. Fellowship makes us friendly. Remember, point one, signs point to sound teaching. Point two, fellowship makes us friendly. Fellowship. That's our second characteristic of a new covenant community. Koinonia might not mean anything to you. This is a term uh, in the, I'm sure it's the Greek word for fellowship. And this word is translated elsewhere. The word here is translated elsewhere as fellowship, yes, but also partnership, participation, sharing, contribution, being common with one another. It's also the term that's used to describe the common language of the time, Koine Greek. Koine, the the root word is still the same, meaning common, the common Greek. That's what people all over the world, and that's what most of our New Testament is written in, is this language called Koine Greek. So why is this important? This term refers to the unity that these people found among one another. They were common with each other, both in proximity, in time, they were common. They made themselves common among one another that they didn't just love and, and, and prayed for and, and appreciated one another from a distance, but their proximity made them common among one another. Notice that the familiarity that we see uh, in this scripture with fellowship is connected to something else. In verses 44 and 45, it says, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. There's that word again. They had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing proceeds to all as any had need. So the outworking here, so the, the, the characteristic trait is fellowship. They had fellowship with one another. The outworking was they cared so deeply for one another and together for Christ that they devoted themselves to partnering, participating, and being common in one another's lives. They were regular in the lives of each other. This only comes through deep, authentic relationship, and it and it comes through the outworking of the gospel on a people who care deeply for one another because Christ has cared so deeply for them. That sort of heavenly-influenced uh, fellowship was inexplicably normal for them. This was normal. This is just what they did. They knew that, that Christ has... Eight of them, they knew these men were teaching the words of Christ, and they knew that they loved the people around them, and they wanted to be around these other people who were uh, believing the same things as them. They wanted fellowship with one another. This was an inexplicably normal thing for them. When they knew little else about what it meant to follow Jesus, they knew that they loved one another because Christ had loved them fellowship should make us friendly. It was normal for them to give sacrificially so that their brothers and sisters may have what they need for this life. It was normal for them. Let me be clear here for just a moment. A lot of people have approached this text and wanted to make arguments for things like socialism or communism. That is not what's happening here, right? Communism is being forced uh, for everyone to kind of put their stuff in a pile and the government kind of just distributes as it sees fit. Socialism is like You can keep whatever you have up to a certain point, and then beyond that, you got to give it to the government, and they'll give it to people under a certain threshold, right? That's not what's going on here. These new Christians were under no compulsion, no obligation to meet the needs of others, but they did it. They actually just, just gave because they wanted people to have what they needed. Because they knew God was himself a generous God. They knew that God had given them the gospel that he had provided for them, everything that they needed for this life. And so they wanted to give whatever they had. And it wasn't just monetary giving. They were giving of their time. They were giving of what, whatever resources they had lying around. They were just wanting to help in whatever way that they could. For us, it, it might not look, look like selling everything we have so that our church might be provided for. That might not be what it looks like. James Montgomery Boyce puts it this way. Those who share in God, those who share in the attributes of God, inevitably share in God's nature, which includes generosity. And they are generous with those around them. It was normal for them to get together frequently. We see that in the following verses that we're going to talk about, they met in their homes. Day by day, they were meeting together. It was normal for them to know one another deeply, confess, repent, help, encourage, equip. They loved one another and they devoted themselves to each other's betterment. They did not call this extreme Christianity, this sort of raw, authentic, life-on-life Christianity. This wasn't extreme. This wasn't authentic community, right? Or whatever you want to call it. This was simply what they knew to be right. This is what you do. Christ saves he saves us from our sin to a people, and within that people, I am to devote my life to loving them, because together, we're devoting our lives to loving Christ. This wasn't extreme, authentic, new age Christian. This is simply what they thought to be right, and so they, they did it. So much effort is put in churches today, so much effort is put at, at uh D- directing and creating sort of like a community culture, right? A culture of like authenticity. So much effort is, is put towards that. So much is d- devoted to making sure people feel comfortable, heard, welcomed, safe, insert whatever you want there. So much is put towards that. So much so that they'll even forsake things like the first thing we read about, like teaching, in order to, to make comfortable those around them. In order to bolster fellowship, we give up the sound teaching. And yet, so little authentic community comes from places like this. So little authentic community is actually taking place in our world, our city. If, if we're being honest, it seems unnecessary and inexplicably hard to get Christians to be like Christians. To love one another, to encourage one another, to bear one another's burdens, to rejoice with those who rejoice, to weep with those who weep. Vance Havner, uh, um, an evangelist and preacher in the late uh, uh, 20th century, said, Most members live so far below the standard that Scripture sets out for community that you'd have to backslide into fellowship. We are so subnormal that if we were to become normal, people would think we're abnormal. How many conversations have you had with people that are kind of perplexed by the, the, the idea of sitting across from someone at a table, commu- confessing your sin, having them confess theirs to you, repent, pray for one another, and equip one another to go out into this world and, and live righteously a holy life before God. That is completely perplexing to people on the outside of the world. That, that is not normal to them. So in order to become normal, we actually have to look abnormal, is what Havner is saying here. Instead of being stoked that when two or more of Christ's people gather, he's there, instead of being stoked by that truth, we act like we don't want him there because we don't want to be around those other two two people. So I'd rather not have Jesus if I don't have to go be around an authentic community than be around them, have the presence of the Lord, but have my, my heart fleshed out and put on display for other people. It makes people uncomfortable. But this is normal for the Church of Acts. This is what they did in our passage. We should be thrilled to do these to do these things. We should be thrilled. We get to see Christ in other people. Do you know how insane that is? Do you know how absolutely insane that sounds to other people? We get to see Christ working through other people. When we gather around them, when we sit across from the table, when we talk about the things of God, we get to see Christ in each other. This is a good thing. But have you tasted it for yourself? Have you tasted it for yourself? of how good that really is. Because if so, if you truly pressed into fellowship, community, the fellowship of believers and tasted the sweet fruit that is waiting for us there, you will never want to go without tasting it again. You will not be able to get it out of your blood. You'll see your, your, for yourself why they thought it to be so normal in the first century. After years of living with authentic, God-centered, Bible-taught community, You'll wonder how anyone ever lived without it. It's a good thing that we're around one another. Fellowship is a good thing, and they devoted themselves to it. So, first, science point to sound teaching. Secondly, fellowship makes us friendly with one another. Thirdly, gathering fuels going. The gathering Fuels going. So the last two things on that list in verse 42 is really essentially one thing. So it says that in, in verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread and the prayers, right? The breaking of the bread and prayers. This term here has a twofold meaning for us today. A twofold meaning primarily this is actually focusing on what Paul, in his letters, would later call the Lord's Supper, or communion that we know it of today, the, the very thing that we're going to take this morning. No doubt that they're praying individually, and no doubt that they're sharing a meal with one another, but this is referring to the people of God coming together to commit themselves to the prayers and to the breaking of bread, a.k.a. the Lord's Supper, the ordinance that Jesus had given the church. Likewise, the breaking of the bread also has, uh, so the breaking of the bread and the prayers have a a double meaning because we see the other one in verse 46, right? So the first one in verse 42 is actually talking about the breaking of the the bread, the prayers. We'll see there um, something called the definite article in language. It is something that when you see it, it is the only one. Right when they're saying the breaking of the bread, it's really talking about one specific thing, not just any time you break bread and share a meal with one another. He's saying the breaking of the, uh, the bread, the thing that that you should be thinking of when I communicate this, aka the Lord's Supper. It's the same definite article that we'll see. Uh, think about things like the uh, like. Um, Like John 14, 6, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life, that's three definite articles right there, which means there is no other but that one, right? That's the purpose of this definite article. And we see that in verse 42, but in verse 46, there's no definite article, which means, this probably means that that included, because it says in verse 46 that they attended the temple and breaking bread together in their homes. So they are going out, sharing meals with one another and coming together to gather around the Lord's supper. What this point is making clear is that these people had a consistent willingness to obey the simple things that Jesus had called them to. The regular, ordinary gathering of people, that's what they devoted themselves to. So prayer and breaking of the bread, don't. Think of them as two individual things on this list. Actually put them together and uh, think of them as gatherings, right? The gathering of the church. Because when they gathered, they took the Lord's Supper and they prayed. Those are the primary things that they did. Yes, the apostles taught. Yes, they more than likely sang songs. But what I was talking about here is they devoted themselves to the Lord's Supper, reminding themselves of the crucifixion and the resurrection, and prayer, acknowledgement that they need God to live this life. That's what they devoted themselves to. So we see in verse 47, the the second part of it, the result of their consistent willingness to do these things. So the, the simple things that they were doing was they gathered and agreed on Christ's lordship, as he said in Matthew 16. They took the Lord's Supper like he told them to in Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, right? When he told them to take this Lord's Supper as often as you do it in remembrance of me. And they prayed together just like Jesus instructed them to in Matthew 6, Luke 11, John 17, and so on and so forth. Jesus gave them commands to pray. Jesus gave them commands to do this in remembrance of me as often as you do it. They worshiped, y'all. They gathered together. They did what Jesus said. They loved one another and they worshiped God. Both publicly and privately. Many scholars have commented on this, and it, it seems like there's, there's kind of two, two things going on here. They are gathering at the temple at Solomon's Portico or wherever else that they find themselves uh, on that particular day. They are gathering corporately and doing these things, but then they're going home to home and continuing to worship. They're continuing to do these things. They just look a little bit different. We see that they had both the gatherings at the temples... And we do these things together as the Lord has instructed us to do, but they're also meeting house to house, praising God and receiving their food with glad and generous hearts, remembering that it is from God that all blessings flow. This trait, this, this bread and prayer, this goes hand in hand with our last, sort of our, our last outworking, right? The fellowship of I'm sorry, this goes well with the, the, the previous point, the fellowship of believers as was their, uh, so they committed thems- themselves to public worship, but also to the fellowship. They were fueling fellowship with breaking bread to, with one another, praying for one another. This fellowship fueled what they were doing as a new covenant people. The gathering was leading them to worship, right? The gathering was leading them to fellowship. This time here was would have been equipping, encouraging them to take these people, go out those doors, and love one another well to the glory of God. Is it doing that for us? Is it doing that for you? Is the regular, consistent assembly of Redemption Baptist Church fueling the fire of your fellowship? Is it informing and instructing and scheduling time away from here, or is it just here? Can I brag on the Lord in you for just a moment? I appreciate the moment to do that. I love that our people here at RBC make such a discerned effort to break bread and share meals with one another. It's something that we've committed ourselves to from the beginning, and I see it all over the place. It's happening constantly, consistently. It fills my heart with joy to see us trying, right? I'm trying to obey, I'm trying to do this with one another, even though, even through sick kids and crazy schedules and occupational, you know apathy or whatever else that we we may find ourselves in, by God's grace, we are still trying to break bread and pray and worship together. And I commend us for that. But look at what they did house to house. They broke bread generously and they praised God. Both things are fueled by their time in public worship and regular assembly of believers. So though we're really good about breaking prayers Uh, sorry, breaking bread with each other over our dinner tables, over uh, uh, tables at restaurants, in a coffee shop, whatever it may be. I wonder how quick we are to invite people into the worship that's already taking place in your home, right? How often do you talk about what God is actually doing in the midst of your home worship, your devotion to Christ and the reading of his scriptures and singing with your, your family? I wonder how often this crosses us crosses our mind to invite other people into those practices that we're already participating in at home. Perhaps this is something for us to consider and ponder. But look here, this is the first work together that the first church of Jerusalem, if you will, committed themselves to. So so these things, the teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of the bread, and the the prayers, they are committing these these, these things. uh, They're committing themselves to these things. And these things are showing and outworking. They're having an effect on the people, having an effect on them and the people around them. How do we know that? Look with me at our final verse as we conclude tonight, verse 47. Praising God and having favor with all people, And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. The good news of the gospel led to the gathering of Christ's church. The gathering of his church led to the going with the gospel. And as a result, the gospel went to the ends of the earth, and you and I are now beneficiaries of that going. Clearly, they were not just gathering at the temples or in their homes, but they were going as well. They were taking this gospel to those who they interacted with in the town square, in the marketplace, wherever they found themselves in. They are taking the, the good things that were happening when they gathered, when they committed themselves to the teaching, when they, when they broke bread to one another and they fellowshiped one another. They were taking that out to other places that weren't around the fellowship of the believers, Okay, their jobs, their homes, their you friends, know, their friends, their neighbors. God met their faithfulness to go with fruit of added souls. And that is a good thing. But make no mistake, Luke and the, and the people of Acts 2 knew exactly who it was that was bringing these people in. It wasn't, it wasn't us saving or us adding these, these, uh, these new souls in, but they attribute salvation to God and God alone. The Lord was adding to their, their number day by day. Though we are good about inviting others to our dinner tables, I wonder how quick we are to invite them into our, our lives people at work, people at at our school, people in our our homes, our families even with this knowledge that it wasn't Peter, it wasn't John later it wasn't Paul, it wasn't you know James, it wasn't. You know, any of these 120 souls that were gathered there that were doing the work, but God alone was doing the work. God was bringing them in. Even with this knowledge, they weren't sitting on their hands and doing nothing about it. They were going. They weren't refusing to be used by God to draw their friends and neighbors to Christ. No, they were telling every friend that they have that nothing else matters except following this Jesus. Are we doing the same thing? Are we going in a similar fashion? Are we being fueled by the gathering, the teaching, the fellowship that we have with one another? Is that fueling our going to those around us? Do we have the resolve it takes to not ever be able to get past the inv- invitation that we are holding out through tears to those that we love to follow and worship Christ? Our coworkers, friends, family members. This is what the new covenant community did. This is what church is. This is what the people of God do. We are a new covenant people. We are committing ourselves to these things. They devoted themselves to these good works. And they are good. These things are good. We're only able to walk in them because of the riches of God's kindness to us in Christ. We're only able to walk and devote ourselves to these good works because God first came and loved us. He saved us. Therefore, we work for him. And by that kindness, God molds us as we work good for them. So, maybe to to conclude with the words of St. Augustine, we do good deeds. We devote ourselves to things. We, We are committed to doing things that God has called us to. We do good deeds. But God works in us in the doing of them. So, in the accomplishment of them, God is working and moving in us, he is molding us into better image bearers of his hands while simultaneously using us to reach those around us that he loves infinitely more than we do. So, what are we devoting ourselves to today? What are you devoting yourself to today? Is there a resolve, a commitment, an understanding to commit yourself to God's word, his people, the gathering and the going? Or is it, you know, school, job? family, any of those things. I pray that we would step into a conversation with ourselves with honesty, with reverence, and that we find resolve within us, just as these first century Christians did, that we would push ourselves to devote ourselves to a few things that we might be effective for God in all things. So, would you pray with me after we pray? Bobby's going to come up, he's going to lead us a song, and we're going to take communion. If you would, Pray with me as we thank God for what he's done and the example that he sets for us in his people in the first century. Would you pray with me? God, we love you. We're devoting ourselves entirely to being a people that you want us to be. We ask that when our devotion, our resolve, our commitment to sound teaching, to um, fellowship with one another, to the gathering and the, the breaking of the bread and the prayers... If our devotion, our resolve, or our commitment wanes in those areas, we ask that you would bolster us, that you would encourage us, that you would stir us up to love and good works. Because apart from you, we cannot accomplish these things. Apart from you, no no amount of devotion or resolve that a human soul can muster will live up to the standard of your word. But by your grace and empowered by your spirit, we can live in obedience to your commands. And we're grateful for this. So would you come now? Encourage our our, our time together as we sing about the sufficiency of the blood of Christ because only the blood of Christ can unite a people to this degree. So we love you and we're grateful for who you are in Jesus' name. Amen.